0: Man, Good morning. Good afternoon. How y'all doing? Good. Well, David said in Psalms 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Why don't you just look at your neighbor and say, it is good to see you. You should look back at him and say, it's good to be seen today. Listen, guys. I I want to get right to it. Honestly, we got a lot of work to do in a very short amount of time to do it in. That's only three verses, but nevertheless, it's a lot of work. So if you can get to Colossians chapter two, uh, grab your Bibles or your devices and meet me there. Man, praise God for the baptisms today. We had four people between the two services. Amen. Man, I love it. I love it. I love it. Hey, listen, as you turn there, I, I just, man, I, I just want to publicly push uh, our Habakkuk series. I really am excited about it. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with our church, when we say our Habakkuk series, we're literally meaning we're going through a verse by verse and line by line sermon series through the entire book of Habakkuk. And if you've, if you've never done that, if you haven't been a part of our church and we have went through books of the Bible, it is something that uh, it's the way the Lord has wired our church. Uh, Habakkuk is typically not a book that most people pick up. I don't know many people that are going through Habakkuk for their devotional, maybe some of you. Uh, But nevertheless, it is a good book full of questions. Uh, And then at at some point in the book, the questions just stop and the Lord just uh, shows who he is. And so that's a book that's found between Nahum and Zephaniah. And it is a it is a powerful three chapters, but very, very powerful book. And in preparation for it, I'm not sure if Gabe said it, but in preparation for us uh, getting to that series on March 4th, I would love for you guys to just read through it, like make it a part of your devotion, make it a part of, you know, write down some things that the Lord is saying to you. And I'd love for you to just get familiar with the book before we get into our sermon series. One of the things I love about sermon series is it doesn't give me the option and ability to be able to pick and choose what I want to talk about. You know, we let the word of God dictate exactly where our conversations are going in the church. Uh, And so, you know, one of the things that happens when you go through a book of the Bible is it doesn't give me the editorial right to say, well, I'm going to talk about that, but I'm not going to talk about that. Whenever we go through a book of the Bible, you got to talk about whatever's in front of you. And so I'm excited to be able to do that. And I I don't know if you guys uh, appreciate that our church goes through books of the Bible. Uh, But one of the things I love, man, when you look at Paul as he stood before uh, the Ephesian elders in Ephesians chapter two, he says, I mean, I didn't shrink away from declaring to you or preaching to you the whole counsel of God. And there's something, you know, just a personal pet peeve of mine. I, I really genuinely feel like the only thing worse than unfaithful, unbiblical preaching is selective preaching, preaching that picks and chooses what we're going to say. That's just not how it works. Uh, the entire Bible is inspired by the Lord. Therefore, we should be working our way through the entire Bible. And Picking books of the Bible helps us to do that. Uh, Also, man, let me just publicly push our anniversary, our second year anniversary. Amen. Amen. Praise God. It's a big deal that our church is turning two years old. Uh, We're going to celebrate it the last Sunday of March. My pastor and spiritual father, Dr. Eric Mason, will be with us preaching those services. Amen. And let me just encourage you guys to get here early. We are anticipating that it is going to be full services, and so I, when I say full, I mean uh, capacity. Uh, so I, I would ask you guys to get here early. you know y'all y'all be strolling in fifteen minutes afterwards. y'all y'all do that on anniversary. You might not get a seat. Uh, and so the two services i'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that you guys would uh, would be here on time or let me not say on time, be here early because on time just is late. <laughs> so so be here early. All right. Colossians chapter two. I'm excited to preach the word today. Uh, for some of you, it'll be a familiar passage. Uh, and for some of you, even if you're not familiar with the passage, it'll be a familiar message uh, called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, pick me up in verse 13. Verse 13 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. You should circle that. Together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. I love this. Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I typically choose a topic based on one of the words or I try to do like a one word topic. Today, there's three words that I just want to put together. I think that summarizes our Verses, And that is alive, forgiven and victorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for uh, the work that your son Jesus Christ has done over 2000 years ago on the cross. For some reason, those of us that have trusted in that message, even though we are secure and secure in you, we tend to wander from that message. Even as I pray, Lord, I think of uh, Romans chapter one, verse 16 where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. We realize, Lord, that the message of the gospel is is really your power packed into a message. And Lord, I pray that today, as we remind ourselves of the nutrients of your gospel, pray that we wouldn't get bored with it Pray that it wouldn't be a message that we that becomes common, that we've heard. And so it's like, you know, it's just that thing that we just talk about. But, Lord, let it be. Uh, what we need. We thank you that this message does save us, but help us to realize that it doesn't just save us, it does sanctify us. It helps us to, it purifies us, it makes us to look more and more like your son Jesus Christ. So Father, as we get into your gospel today, we pray Jesus Christ will be proclaimed and that he would be the hero. It is in Christ's name we give glory. Let everybody say amen. amen. Alive, victorious, alive, forgiven, victorious. Um, a few weeks ago, Ty and I went and hung out with Chris and Tashina. They just had a baby, we went to hang out with baby Ava. And uh, as we got there and uh, we were playing with the baby and just enjoying time with them, we also realized that we needed to have dinner. We needed to sit down and eat. And so we sat down at the table, baby went to sleep, and finally we had a moment that we could just catch up and talk. And Ty and I were sitting there with Chris and Tashina, and they were beginning to give us the details of, of, uh, of the labor and the delivery and how everything worked out. And uh, so Ty and I begin to share, you know, the details from our firstborn son. Now, my, my son is 14, so it was quite a while ago. And as Ty was sharing the details of the birth of our first son, I realized that she was sharing that a lot of the minute details I forgot. Now, before you look at me with those judgmental eyes and think that I'm a bad father, uh, I, I remembered his birthday. I know his birthday is June 1st. I know he was born in 2003. I know he's born at St. Saint- Mary's Hospital in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. I know some of the bigger details, but the minute details of the day and the events of the day I forgot. And uh, that's typical in this room as well. Many of you in this room have had big moments in your life, whether it was the birth of a child, whether it was a prom, whether it was uh, maybe you got a job that you, the process was cumbersome and you finally got the job. Maybe it was a prom. Whatever the whatever the event was, I'm willing to bet that even though you remember the event, you don't remember the details, the little minute details of the. You don't remember what you had on. You may not remember the smell of the room. It's the little details that we typically begin to fade and we typically forget. And those of you in this room that have trusted in Jesus, I'm willing to bet that some of you, if we're not careful, salvation will be one of those events. We'll remember, like, we appreciate how We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It's just the details. It's almost like we get spiritual amnesia when it comes to how far the Lord has brought you from. And we tend to think like we, we almost feel like salvation. We were privileged. You, you should have saved me. When the reality is he did not have to save you in the details we begin to forget. And so lingering over verses like. What Paul is talking about in the book of Colossians, chapter two, verse 13 to 15, lingering over verses like this really help us to remember the details of our salvation. It's almost like looking in that photo album. You know, you look back in those photo albums and you see pictures and you're like, oh, man, I remember that. And you wouldn't have remembered it unless you looked at the album or it's like looking at a video and you're looking at the past and you're like, man, I remember that. And it begins to those vivid memories become reality for you and almost can relive them. Well, Paul in our text is almost like he's opening up the old photo album and he is showing us the details of our salvation. Now, our church believes the doctrinal position we have called the perseverance of the saints. It just means eternally secure. That simply means that we believe that if Jesus has saved you, once you're saved, you're always saved can't lose your salvation. And the reason you can't lose it is because you didn't earn it. If you earned it, you can lose it. But because you did not earn your salvation, it is impossible. Hear me, impossible for you to lose your salvation. But I would go so far as to say, even though you can't lose your salvation, you can lose the joy surrounding your salvation. You can lose that sense of awe that surrounds your salvation. And, and I, man, I, let me just be honest with you the Christian that has lost the joy of salvation is the perfect candidate to be wooed to another gospel. It's so always being reminded of the gospel, which is why we, one of our core convictions here at the church is Christ-centeredness. And we believe that the gospel message is the central message. And the reason we believe that is because we're all prone to forget it. Or worse, it just becomes that common message. So my, my goal today is, I honestly not to do anything new. I'm just being honest. Y'all know I joke and say I'm a one trick pony. There's nothing new. You will hear if you've been here for a while. What you will be reminded of is how far the Lord brought you from. And you'll be reminded of the might that the Lord has in saving us. Why don't you consider the text with me? Look back at verse 13. Some details in here that I love to pull out in this photo album. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses. The uncircumcision of your flesh. I love this. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Let me lift up the first couple of words. and You should underline these words. And you who were dead. Paul is not mincing words here. Paul is not being he's not making the word more palatable for you. He is just full out calling you 100 percent dead. And that's everybody in this room that is apart from Jesus Christ. And the reason Paul is doing that, the reason he's giving such strong language is because if he doesn't, what the Colossian church will think is, I'm not that bad. If he doesn't say you're dead and they think that they're just hurt, what they will think is I'm repairable. But when he says you are dead, he is talking about the incapable nature of saving yourself. What do I mean? Dead people don't make themselves alive. Some of you have tried to do that. Some of you don't want to trust in Jesus and you want to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You want to white knuckle it. And all you're doing is spraying cologne on a corpse. It still stinks. You're not you're not making yourself alive. You're just trying to beautify yourself. But in reality is the text is very clear that we are dead. And if you're in this room and you're sitting here like, yeah, I understand that. But I don't feel dead this morning. I got up and brushed my own teeth. I showered uh, either this morning or last night. I'm not sure how you do. There's a debate on day funk versus morning funk. I don't know which one you do. I shower in the mornings. That's just my thing. Uh, but th- there are some of us that will think, man, I've done all of that. I don't feel dead. But Paul is like, nah, bro, you are 100 percent dead. And he could have used less embraceable language. He could have used language that wasn't as harsh. This is what Paul could have said. He said he could have said. When you are apart from Christ, he brought you near. That would have been a true statement and he would have accomplished exactly what he was trying to do. He could have said when you were alienated from Christ, he reconciled you to himself. That would have been consistent with scripture and would have been true. But when Paul considers the spiritual condition of man apart from Jesus Christ, the only word he comes up with is dead. And, and here's the crazy part. This isn't the first time Paul has used this language. Remember in Ephesians chapter two, verse one and two, he said, you are dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you all once walked following the course of this world. The principalities that are in the air. And then he ends by saying, and by nature, you are children of wrath. And so if you're in this room thinking, yeah, I hear you, uh, but I'm not that bad. Paul is saying he's pleading. He's grabbing you by the lapels and saying, no, you're dead. If you do not know Jesus, you are dead. Now, I, I, I want you to notice that he could have said you're handicapped. He could have said you're hurt. It's flu season. He could have said you caught the spiritual flu. But he doesn't say he doesn't diagnose you as having a runny nose. He doesn't say you have a bad cough. He puts you in the morgue and says there's no spiritual pulse. You are absolutely dead. And you know how many people will push against that and say, I'm not dead. I'm a good person. Right? I pay my taxes. I, you know, I haven't killed anybody. I'm not a terrorist. And even, you know, we try to re, re, we try to make it more religious, too. I come to church. I go to small group. I serve faithfully. I give faithfully. I'm not dead. You see how much I do. But Paul is pleading with us this morning and like, listen, I don't care how much you do. I don't care how much Bible you can quote. If you have not submitted your life, not just verbally, but submitted your life to Jesus Paul is like, you're dead. You are not alive. You guys remember the movie Green Mile and in the Green Mile, uh, in the movie The Green Mile, Michael Duncan is, is in the paddy wagon and the warden is bringing him out. Y'all remember that scene when the warden's bringing him out and he's bringing him out of the paddy wagon to bring him into his cell. And as he's walking, he's saying three words over and over and over again. Dead man walking, dead man walking, dead man. Walking. Well, he gets inside and Tom Hanks is like, enough, enough, dead man walking. That is every single person that does not know Jesus. We are dead people walking. You look alive, but you are spiritually dead. And those of you who might be a little slow on the uptake, Paul's not talking to physical death here. Because if he was, why is he writing a letter to people that are physically dead? This is a spiritual death. You are separated from the Lord. Here's the question you should be asking. When did I die? You keep saying I'm dead. In fact, every week I come to the church and you keep saying I'm a sinner. Please help me to understand when am I when did I become a sinner and when did I die? When well, we can trace our death all the way back to the original sin with Adam. So there's nothing new that I'm given here today. In Genesis chapter two, when Adam and Eve are put into the garden, here's what God says. He says, and the Lord commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day you eat of it. Listen to this language. You shall surely die. So God said, listen, eat of every tree. But that one tree, which is crazy, like I would have built a fence around it I'd have been like electric fence. Like I'm not eating of that tree. But we're so you know, we're so prone to wander. That's the tree we'll go after because we were told not to. And so when they went after this tree and when they ate of this fruit, the Bible tells us that God said, when you eat of it, you will you will spiritually die Pastor, I hear you. I understand. But that's Adam. Why does that impact? Who cares? If Adam ate of the tree, good for him. He should have spiritually died. I didn't spiritually die because I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat of the tree. But doesn't the text go on to tell us in Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Did you hear that verse? That sin came into the world through one man, Adam. By the way, he doesn't say Eve. It came in through the leadership, came in through Adam. And as sin entered into the world through Adam, it spread to all men. And so all of us in this room, if you're in here going, that's not fair. How in the world are you going to call me spiritually dead because somebody else ate of the tree? This is what happened in the original sin. So everybody that's born after Adam is born with sin. 1991, Disney came out with the movie Beauty and the Beast. Can y'all believe it's been 27 years since that movie came out? I know some of y'all are like, dag, I feel old. 27 years ago, Beauty and the Beast came out. I remember when it was coming out. And in the Beauty and the Beast, you know, it's, it's interesting when you consider what happened in that movie. In that movie, there's an old lady that, comes to, if you don't know, the old lady comes to the to the door and when she gets to the door of this prince's house, she gets there, servants are in the house, but the only person that answers the door is the prince of the house. And, and she just wants shelter from the cold and from the danger of the night. And he had a palace, so he had more than enough room, but he denies her and he shoes her away. And really what she was doing, this was more of a test. She was trying to see his moral character if he was going to let her end. Now, in an unfolding twist, he didn't know that she wasn't just a regular old lady, but she was an enchantress. She was a witch. And so when he denied her, she put a spell on the entire house. Notice it was not just the prince, the man of the house that was in- affected by the spell. Like he was turned into a hideous beast, but his servants were turned into teapots and kettles and clocks. But they're not the ones that denied the lady. Who denied the lady was the man. And that is what it is like when it comes to the original sin. Adam, he messed it up for all of us. And now everybody in this room is considered not just a sinner, but according to Paul, dead. And we died at the same time that Adam and Eve fell. So if you're in here going, nah, I I hear you, but I'm, I'm still a good person. You can feel like you're a good person if you want to. But at the end of the day. The word of God is right. You can rip this text out if you want to. It's fine. Go ahead and rip it out. When you go on your phone, you can't rip that one out. It's in there still. This is Paul's words. And Paul is very clear that you are dead. And some of you that might think you're not, here's a good verse for you. Romans chapter three, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. There's not a person in here apart from Jesus that can claim righteousness. All of us in this room are dead. Let's keep moving, because what Paul is doing here is Paul is piling up our debt against us. And he's going to show us something that I think if you trusted in Jesus, it should birth some type of praise in here. Look at what it says, verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and in 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 the uncircumcision of your flesh. Please just circle this next name. God. Sometimes I foolishly preach without describing biblically who God is. Sometimes I'll just say God's name and I'll assume that everybody in the room understands and knows who God is. But if you'll give me a few moments to just to unpack, not all of them, two of God's essential attributes. And then you'll be able to see the contrast between what what Paul said we are and what God is. Two essential attributes. The first one, God is holy. He just is. That literally means that he's set apart. No sin can dwell in his presence. Y'all remember when Moses was walking past the bush and and the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. Remember what God said there, which is a probably a place that Moses often walked by. But this day, because the presence of of God was there, what did God say? Take off your shoes. Why? Because shoes were considered unclean. In the presence of the Lord, nothing can be unclean. Take those shoes off. This is holy ground is what God said. Later on, remember, he tries to get he tries to see God face to face. He says, show me your face. And God is like, you can't see me and live. He puts him in the cleft of a rock and lets his aftermath. And even the verse that uh, Felicia read earlier, Isaiah, chapter six, verse three, says this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holiness is an essential attribute of God. And because he's holy, no sins allowed in his presence. Okay, not only is he holy. But he's just. What does that mean? Because of his holiness, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That means if there's sin around him, he has to kill it. Now, I don't know if if you're following along with the text, but you do realize Paul just said, apart from Jesus Christ, we're dead in our sin. We're dead in our trespasses. But then he goes on and talks about God. And so really what you see is. God should be our problem in the text. Like it just said, we're dead in our sins. The next verse should say, God and his holiness killed all of us. But the sinner's problem becomes the sinner's solution. God, which should be on our back killing us, is the one that the text says makes us alive. Are you following what Paul is saying? 2004, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. In 2004, uh, 2004, there's a young lady named Laura Hatch, and she was in Seattle. She goes to a party. She's an 18-year-old girl. She goes to a party. She parties all night, and uh, her parents let her, you know, let her do it. She's supposed to come home at a certain time. She never came home. So that next morning, her parents still didn't see her, and so they called the cops, and the cops were slow moving because they thought that she was just you know, partying extra hard, and so she stayed out late, or they thought she ran away from home, and so they didn't, they didn't try to do any type of search and rescue, but the parents were like, nah, I know Laura. She's, that's not her. So what they decided to do was they're going to get all their friends together and they're going to do their own search and rescue party. And so they searched all throughout Seattle, searched all around the area where the party was, could not find her. Eight days later, one of the friends of the family saw her Toyota Camry in a ditch 150 feet down. Eight days later. And so she calls the cops. She calls the paramedics. They finally get there. The ambulance gets there. And when he gets there, she wakes up. Now, here's the crazy thing. She thought she was out. She was delusional. She thought she was out for only a couple of hours, but she was out for eight days. So the paramedic said, you should have died of dehydration. You haven't had you were unconscious for eight days. You had no water. You should have died of dehydration. It gets better. They get her to the hospital. True story. Get her to the hospital. And when they get her to the hospital, they begin to examine her and found out she had a blood clot on her brain. Now, here's the crazy thing. The the doctor said that the blood clot didn't grow because she was dehydrated. If she was drinking, the blood clot would have swelled. In fact, here's what the paper said the next morning. Surgeons are monitoring a patient named Laura Hatch. After being passed out in a ditch with no water for eight days, it is believed that listen to this. It is believed that the dehydration caused by up to eight days of unconsciousness may have saved her, preventing the blood clot from swelling and putting lethal pressure on her brain. Dehydration will kill you, but dehydration saved her. Notice the text. God should kill you, but God decided in his grace and in his mercy that he was going to save you. In fact, again, the text should read, and God, it, it should read that we were dead in our trespass and our sins, and God and his holiness killed us. But look at what the text says. Look back with me. Verse number 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I love these three words. God made alive. We keep going. Together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. You should underline. You should highlight. You should circle God made alive. Draw a line out to the margin and write receipts. This is. Is how you got saved. You were not saved. Nothing in the text says that God helped you to save yourself. Nothing in the text says that God gave you the power to save yourself. The text tells me that God made you alive. In other words, salvation is a work of the Lord. So unbelievers in your life and friends in your life and family members that don't know Jesus, you think that the power lies with you to eloquently tell them the gospel when the power lies in God saving them. Pray that God would save them because the the Bible says to me that God makes them alive. This is the good news of the gospel. And unfortunately, this message has become common. We hear words like God made us alive and think like he should have. He needs me. He has to have me on the team. In reality, he should have killed you. You should have been on the cross. But Jesus Christ decided to get on the cross. For some reason, we think, you know, when it comes to salvation, we think we help God out. I know at least I thought that before I was saved. I thought like, yeah, I believed in the cross, but I got to help the cross out a little bit. And in reality, like, you know, you weren't in charge or had no part of your own physical birth. You didn't say my eyes are going to be this color. You weren't in the womb, you know, fixing your hair, trying to say my hair is going to be this color. You didn't create your lungs. You didn't create your liver. You didn't create your heart. God created every part of your physical birth. And for some reason, when it comes to our spiritual birth, we think we got to play in it. You have no part in your own spiritual birth the same way you had no part in your physical birth. Bible just said God makes us alive. But it doesn't just say he makes us alive. Look at the text. It says, God made, him, God made alive together with him. I love this, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. Verse 13 tells us that God forgave us. Verse 14 will explain how God forgave us. Because hear me, if God, remember I said he's just, if God simply forgives us and he doesn't demand a penalty for our sin, he's not just. Stay with me, look at the text. Verse 14. So how did he forgive us? Here's how. Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so how God decided to save you was that he was going to send his own son to pay. This is why he's just. God didn't look at your sin and then say, ah, it's not a big deal. I'm going to forgive him. Like if he just stopped at the end of verse 13 and just forgave us, he's not just. Verse 14 says, no, nah, I'm still going to deal with that sin. But how I deal with it is different than how you might expect. I'm not dealing with it by you paying for the sin. I'm going to deal with it by putting my own son on the cross to take all of your sin. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what J.B. Phillips says. He says he has forgiven you all of your sins Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence and the broken laws and commandments, which always hung over our heads. He has completely annulled it, listen, by nailing it over his head on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're in here and you're thinking, man, how does this cross thing work? Here's what Isaiah 53 will say that he put on him. He laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all like all of your sin. I skipped past it, but look at verse 13. Can you all stay with me here? Verse 13, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. There's not a sin that you will sin. This means you're sinless. If you've trusted in Jesus, he sees you as though you live like Jesus. You are considered sinless. Why? Because if you have to pay for the sin that Jesus already paid for, this is double jeopardy. God's not just. But you can stand before the Lord and be accredited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and act like you live like Jesus. When really we all know, y'all know I love the word trifling. You was trifling. But God took all of it. Not some of it. Not partial payment. He took all of your sin and He put it on him. My first car was a Toyota Tercel. And somebody said, wow, it was a, <laughs> a binge to me. I'm just saying. That thing took me up and down the highway. And so when my mother gave me the Toyota Tercel, it was actually her car. She bought it for herself at first, and uh, then she, she bought my, my older brother. He got another car first, and she, she bought him a car, and she, would de- she decided she was going to give me the old car. I wasn't going to complain because I didn't have a car at all. So She gave me the Toyota Tercel because she upgraded and got another car. So she had three, three cars that were under her name. The only thing she asked me to do was take over the payments. So I said, no problem. I'll take over the payments. So I begin to take over the payments and every month. You know, back in the day, you couldn't you know, you didn't log online and you didn't have automatic bill pay. Like you had to either send a check or you had to call to make sure you were paying the bill. And uh, somewhere along the line, about a year later, she began to refinance all three of her cars, all three cars. She just she didn't tell me. She went to the Toyota dealer. She refinanced the cars. And because my car was the oldest car and had the, the least amount of payments left, the, when she refinanced, my car was paid off. Now, I don't, I don't know if you had debt in this room, school debt, but when you hear sweet words like, you have no more payments, I'm just saying. Listen, last week we talked about spiritual gifts. I spoke in tongues right on the phone when I talked to the lady. She said to me, you have no more payments, sir. I said, no way. Tongues right there. But here's the difference. So this is what happens with Jesus. You make you you think you're making payments and Jesus comes in and then cancels. Did you see the text? Like I'm not making this up. Look at verse 14 by canceling the record of debt that stood against you. The reason we don't rejoice over that is because we don't think we have that much debt against God. But you are dead in your sins. There is debt piled up against you. And look at what the text says, that he cancels the record of debt. How does he do it? By putting it on Jesus. The difference between my mom refinancing my cars and Jesus is that Jesus doesn't refinance your sins on the cross. He he didn't take a check and pay for your sins. He gave it with his life on the cross of Jesus Christ. And all he asks you to do is rejoice over that message. Rejoice over the cross And so over 2,000 years ago, every single one of your sins was nailed on the cross. And you know what I love? Good Friday's coming up. There's three words that Jesus says, after he takes your sin, the punishment that you deserve, he says, "It is finished." In other words, why are you still working for what's done? It's already done in Jesus Christ. And so the text will tell us, "Listen, I forgave you. How did you forgive me? How did you cancel the record of debt? By nailing it to the cross. What was on the cross? Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. We'll end here. Because before I read verse 15, for some reason, we think that the cross was just power. we minimize it. We think the cross was powerful enough to cancel out our sins. Yes and amen. But we forget that the cross was also powerful enough to crush Satan's influence over you. Look at what the text says. Verse 15. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Not only did the cross cancel out your sin, but it crushed Satan. When he speaks here about putting him to open shame by triumphing over them in him, when he talks about this, really what he's talking about is a Roman general triumphal parade. When the Roman army would take over a nation, what they would do is they would take those soldiers, they would disarm them of their weapons, and they would parade them through the streets so that they would be put in open shame. Paul says that that is what Jesus did on the cross, that he took Satan's weapons, disarmed him. See, that's what I love about Jesus. He don't fight fair. He's not just going to beat you. He's going to take your weapons and beat you. And this is what I love about Jesus. And for some reason, we have this, you know, we have this false view of Jesus. We think he was, you know, this guy that was running through the lilies, you know, like this with hair flowing like that. That ain't the Jesus of the text. Like he wasn't going, Thaddeus, no, no, it was none of that. Jesus was, we think that he stayed a humble lamb, but he's a ferocious lion and he conquered you. We do not serve a weak king. We serve a king that was able to conquer your sin. And so if he conquered the enemy of your soul, why do we have sin in our life and we say, I can't stop sinning? How do you say that? How does a believer that has the Holy Spirit living in them say, I can't stop sinning? You can stop sinning. Why? You got the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you because Jesus crushed the sin. Now, don't get, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that, like, I'm not preaching perfectionism. I'm not saying you can overcome sin to where you are never sin. No, we're always going to struggle. As long as you got internal sin and external sin, the presence of sin is always... The only time we'll be sinless is when we're with the Lord. So you're always striving towards perfection. But that you know how many people sit in my office across from me and be like, I can't stop sinning. I can't stop that sin. I'm like, then you're not a believer, because if you've trusted in Jesus, the Bible says he triumphed like he's triumphant. He put the enemy to open shame. Here's what I know. Some of you in this room, when it comes to the gospel, You, for some reason, have taken this message of the cross and just made it a common message. And so when we talked about those vivid details of your salvation, for some reason, some of you in here have lost that sense of joy. You've lost that sense of all. When you first met Jesus, when you first fell in love with him, you was in your word. You were getting it in with people. you You were convicted of sin. You were repenting. And you know how a good trigger for you to know you've lost your sense of joy is when you're numb to sin. When you just let it just roam in your life, you watch everything, you discuss everything, you can't break sin in your life, you're probably numb. I'm not saying you're not a believer, but you probably lost your joy over it. Here's what I got up this morning and did. I was supposed to get up at 6. I was a little lazy, so 6.20 I got up, hit the snooze button twice. When I got up this morning, I pleaded with the Lord that he would spark in this room a sense of joy in the gospel. Because for some reason, we've let it become redundant and a a message that we always hear. But it is not just a redundant message. It is a message that you need to submit your life to in every season. There's never a season in your life where you move past the gospel. We never move past it. It is the message that saves you. It is the message that sanctifies you. And it is the message that will take you home with the Lord. Every head bowed and every eye closed. There's somebody in this room that has lost that joy. Here's the crazy thing. You know I'm talking to you. There's sometimes you're like, I don't know, this could be to somebody else. No, and then there's sometimes when you know that I'm talking to you. And some of you in this room, some young lady knows that I'm talking to her. Some young man knows that I'm talking to him. Here's what I want to do. Nothing spooky. I simply want to pray for you. If you're in this room and you're saying, I lost my sense of joy to the gospel. I lost my sense of awe and wonder and the work and the details and how far he saved me from. If you've lost that, I want to pray for you today. If that's you, if you could slip your hand in the air, you say, man, I want to regain and rekindle that fire. Don't be embarrassed. Slip that hand in the air. I see those hands. I see those hands. Every head bow. I see those hands. There's a lot of hands up. There's more hands that need to be up. There's some of you in here that go through the religious cycles. You allow religion to take the place of Jesus. Don't let it take the place. In fact, the one thing Jesus always came to come against is our religiosity. And we let that hinder us from really getting it in with the Lord. Those of you who raised your hand, if you could do me a favor and a step of boldness, if you could come down to the altar. I just simply want to pray for you. If you've raised your hands and say, I want to rekindle and respark," Some would say, recommit. I just want you to come down. Please, come on. Y'all see these people coming. You guys move on in for me. If you can't get up here, it's fine. Just fill those aisles. These are people that want to give, make sure that their relationship with the Lord is tight. We let the cares of life Take away our joy. Some of you in this room, even some of you that are still sitting, you let burdens take your joy. I want to pray today that the Lord would rekindle that fire. Father, I thank you for every single person that's on this altar. Every person on this altar is a representation of you. And you want for them what you want for every single believer, and that is to look more like your son. Father, we repent for letting other things be more beautiful than you. We repent for letting that job take the place of you. We repent for letting that relationship take the place of you. Lord, we repent for letting religion take the place of you. Some of us in this room haven't spoke to you in months. Let's be honest. Some of us on this altar haven't read our Bibles in months. Some of them may know the gospel, and, but yet it hasn't impacted their heart. Here's reality. Lord, I pray that everybody on this altar is saved, but the reality is some of them that are looking for joy to be sparked may not even be saved. Them coming to the altar may be you saying, give your life to me now. If that is the case, Lord, would you not let them leave here without talking to somebody Because there is no important event like salvation. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done. We pray that you would give us spiritual discipline, Lord. Even as we walk through this hard life, would you give us discipline? And not discipline because we want to be legalistic to appease you. We want to follow the rules and have discipline because of the work that you've done on our behalf. So, Lord, would you do that in our hearts? To do that in our hearts. Put people around us that can remind us of our need for you. Some of us are on this altar because the people that are in our lives don't remind us of our need for you. They remind us that we need to feed our flesh. Father, help us in this room. For your glory and for your honor, it is in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Can we thank God for those that came down to the altar? Amen. You may be seated. Any of you that have come down to the altar and or maybe you that are sitting in didn't come down to the altar. If that's you and you. you Would honestly say that I I don't know the Lord and I want to know him. You're talking about rekindling. But some of us just I just don't know him and I want to know him. I want to give my life to him. Would you do me a favor? Don't wait until tomorrow. Give your life to him today. And if that's you harvesters, can you all raise your hand if you're a harvester? We have a few people. Hold those hands up for me. Look around the room. If you have not trusted in Jesus and you're a harvester, I mean, you haven't trusted in Jesus and you want to, please talk to one of these people. Keep your hands up, guys. Talk to one of these, these men or these young ladies that know the Lord. Talk to them so they can share the gospel with you and tell you what it means to go from spiritual darkness to spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Pray that you would seal it in our hearts. Some of us have lost that joy, and I pray that you would rekindle it. It's in Christ's name we give all glory and honor. Amen.